Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The sexual self-help market is huge. Just consider that if you search for sex self-help books on Amazon, you'll find yourself wading through more than 70,000 hits. This isn't surprising in light of how common sexual difficulties are. In fact, in a recent nationally representative survey I conducted of adults in the United States, I found that just over half of Americans reported experiencing at least one sexual difficulty in the last year. When you consider that this is a country of over 330 million people, and there are only a few thousand sex therapists in total, you can begin to understand why the self-help market is so massive. There just aren't enough therapists to go around. The problem with a lot of self-help books, though, is that they often make bold promises to unlock the secrets to everlasting sexual passion and excitement in just three, four, or five easy steps with one-size-fits-all advice. These tips and tricks may work for some people, but they're not enough for others. And when the quick fix doesn't work, you need to dive deeper and really try and understand your unique sexual self. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to discuss how to uncover your core erotic themes and how you can get more of what you want out of sex. I am joined by Cindy Darnell, a sex and relationship therapist originally from Australia and now based in New York City. Cindy runs a global consulting practice for individuals, couples, and polycules to help people better navigate relationships and sexual difficulties. Cindy's latest book is titled Sex When You Don't Feel Like It, The Truth About Mismatched Libido and rediscovering desire. I can't wait for this conversation. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer lasting erections while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, JUSTIN20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Cindy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of sex therapy in the first place. So what is it that drew you to this area and what do you love most about being a sex therapist? So I've been working in human sexuality for about 30 years, but working on the clinical side of things for about 20 years. So I started out in Australia just as a regular psychotherapist. And what I found in my training was that we talked about relationships, we talked about intimacy, we talked about the state of the world, all that kind of stuff. But people were really reluctant to talk about sex. It was this sort of addendum. It was nothing that was considered part of well-being, part of the human condition. It was this separate thing. And then I pursued subsequent advanced degrees in human sexuality and, and health sciences, where, again, the focus overwhelmingly was on, you know, diseases, on, you know, very much through a medical lens of looking at sex as something that was about function and dysfunction and performance and, you know, how to sort of make everybody fit into this, you know, practical, successful performance sort of stuff. And what I discovered 
through that kind of training, and this is sort of you know going back years ago, was that really only scratched the surface of the kinds of things that people are struggling with when they come into a sex therapist's office, a sexologist's office. And so over the last you know 10 or so years in particular, I really started to hone my personal research and my work much more into not what's wrong with people, because I think there's a lot of stuff about that. Certainly a lot of the clickbait articles are, you know, are you not lasting long enough? Do you come too fast? Are you this? Are you that? Do you feel empowered? Do you feel disempowered? Are you all of these things? But we don't really hear a lot about, well, what actually brings pleasure to people? And also pleasure, we also tend to sort of reduce it down to this thing about it being a physical thing, when for a lot of people, it can also be mental, it can be emotional, it can be social, it can be relational, it can be political, there are lots of elements to it. So for me, what I think I enjoy most about doing this work is getting to have really meaningful conversations with people about sex that matters to them, not just fulfilling a social script, not just, you know, how do I make peace with my kinks or how do I, you know, how can I keep my erection longer or how can I become multi-orgasmic? All that stuff is great. I'm not saying that that's not great. But for me, my personal interest is the stuff that sits just below the surface of that, which is why does that matter? I think that's the essence of erotic satisfaction is the stuff that just sits below the surface. I totally agree. And I thank you for sharing all of that. And I think you make a lot of great points, especially about how there's so much information out there about sex that in a lot of ways tries to to shame us, to make us feel bad about ourselves in order to get our eyeballs on a page so that we can, you know, click through some ads or something else like that. And, you know, there's really so much more so much better information that we could be getting about sex which is why i really appreciate the work that you do and everybody else that i have on this podcast who really want to get sex positive information out there that's not about making somebody feel bad about themselves but it's really helping them to discover and explore themselves and figure out how to approach sex in a way that works for them so let's talk about your new book sex when you don't feel like it one of the points that you make in this book is that we're surrounded by generic sex advice. And with the internet, we probably have more access to this advice than any generation ever. However, you argue that this advice just isn't cutting it. It's not solving our problems. So can you give us some examples of what you mean by generic sex advice and tell us a little bit about why you don't think that approach works? Yeah. So what I mean by generic sex advice is... Things like, you know, and I've been interviewed for these articles myself, so I'm not poo-pooing them, but I'm just sort of creating a context here so people can move across what I'm talking about. This notion of, you know, for example, positions. What are the best positions, you know, to make her squirt? Or, you know, the best blowjob techniques to, you know, blow his mind? Or the best vibrators to create such and such sensation? There are elements of truth in all of those things. And what tends to happen is people will perfect these techniques. They'll become really good at, you know, hand sex to make somebody squirt, or they'll be really good at blowjobs and, you know, they can get somebody to come in three minutes, or they'll be really good at, you know, double penetration and think, yeah, you know, this is fantastic. 
And all of that stuff is fantastic, except for when it's not. And what I mean by that is people might go through the motions of doing all these things, squirting and coming and double fisting and all the things that they want to do. And then still at the end of it feel like mm, something's missing, you know. And that something missing speaks to the fact that being able to squirt and ejaculate on cue and, and you know, have orgies until the cows come home is is fine as long as that is actually all you want from sex. And in my discussions with people whose practices go from, you know, the mundane to the profane, a lot of those people are motivated by more than just getting off because and I talk about this in my book, if we were motivated by just by getting off, a lot of us would be satisfied with masturbating. And I'm sure there are people listening who are perfectly satisfied with masturbating, and that's fine. And there are those people who say, well, you know, I'm motivated by horniness or I want to, you know, I want to be able to do all these wild things. But still there is something else that is sitting below that that motivates them to want to share that with one or two or five other people. There is something about that part of the connection that if it's not perfectly right, if it's not executed fully, they might have the best orgasm ever. But if the connection between those people is in some way off or their mind isn't on the job or something is just not quite right, it can leave them feeling empty and then they might go in search of it over and over and over to the point that they start feeling like maybe there's something not, you know, maybe I'm missing the point here. We end up being in danger of labelling ourselves or getting labelled sex addicts by our partners, which I know you we've all talked about this is not a thing, but this is where this kind of anxious sort of pathology comes from is this feeling that what I am doing is not fulfilling me and no matter which way I go and no matter how many, uh, you know, squirting videos and whatever videos I watch, I'm still not getting the, the nourishment that I'm looking for. And I think for a lot of folks it's because their approach to sex and it's not about the activities that they're doing or not doing, is that they're not actually in touch with what their real motivations are, what is it that is inspiring them to move forward? And I pose that question in the book being, why do you have sex? Like, what do you want to get out of it? Because if it is just to get off, you're probably going to be better off doing that by yourself. It's a guaranteed outcome if it's just you. But when you bring in other people, there's a whole lot of extra stuff going on that you may or may not be ready for. And that's often where problems start showing up, but it's also where people describe the greatest fulfillment. And that is what my book is about. I love all of that. And I think really what you're saying is that you can have as many different techniques for approaching sex as you can, tips and tricks and you can be really good at giving pleasure and maybe you're having a lot of sex and you're having a lot of orgasms and it feels good, but there can still also sometimes be that case where something is missing and you're not getting what you really want out of that encounter. You're so right that a lot of people just feel sexually unfulfilled, even if the sex they're having is really great. So that really speaks to the importance of understanding why do we have sex in the first place? 
And you mentioned to me previously in our email correspondence that you were inspired by the work of Cindy Meston and David Buss, both of whom are former and fantastic guests on this program. And they published this really important and highly cited paper a while back on why humans have sex. And they found that there are at least 237 distinct reasons. Now, as you were just saying, it's really crucial for us to understand our own reasons for having sex. And I think for many people, they've never really sat down and thought about, well, why do I have sex? And what do I really want to get out of sex? So can you tell us a little bit about how somebody can go about pinpointing their own motivations for sex and why it's worth sort of pondering what it is that you want to get out of sex before you have it? Yeah. You know, the subheading of the book is The Truth About Mismatched Libido and Rediscovering Desire. So this is a particularly important topic, I think, for people who are in relationships, because relationships are all going to go through stages where libidos are going to be mismatched, and it's not an indication that the relationship is rocky. Sometimes it is, but often it's not about that at all, and it's about you know, the stuff that we're talking about here. So when people feel like they've lost interest in sex, often they can panic and think, you know, I'm going to disappoint my partner. I'm going to disappoint myself. I'm going to pull the relationship down. And we start sort of spiraling into this unpleasant place because most of us are conditioned to believe and to expect that the primary motivator for sex is horniness. And so when horniness is not readily accessible to us, which often happens in long-term relationships, and this is true across genders and orientations, it has been noted, I'm sure you've seen those studies too, that it's not uncommon for desire, or for horniness rather, to drop in long-term partnerships, particularly monogamous partnerships. So then we're left with this situation where we say, well, you know, we can't rely on horniness. If that bus is not coming, are we just going to end up stranded at the bus stop forever? Or are we going to find another mode of transport? Are we going to find another way to get to the party if that's actually where we want to go? So the first part of it really is about asking ourselves, you know, do I really want this to change? And if I do, why do I want it to change and how? Do I want it to change? Because it's one thing to sort of say to ourselves, well, if I can't be horny, then then I can't do anything about it. Maybe that's true. But people, as we found in this study, people are motivated to have sex for lots and lots of reasons, and horniness is only one of them. So there, you know, according to that study, there are 236 other reasons to have sex. So when people are like, well, you know, I'm not horny, so that's the end, that, you know, game over for me. I'm like, are you kidding? Come on, let's, let's go, let's go. So we have to start thinking more laterally about this. And this is why I think, you know, going back to your question, why is it important that folks do this, is because it gives us uh, it gives us a much more robust relationship with our erotic well-being, with our capacity to overcome the hurdles of, you know, the tedium of long-term relationships. And it actually gives us a, another sort of feather in the cap of what I would say is our erotic intelligence. When we are able to navigate our erotic motivations as something far more than just carnal, because they are, we have more power. We have more. Uh, we have greater skills to be able to lift ourselves and our relationships out of the sexual doldrums by recognizing that, well, actually, my motivation for wanting to get it back together with you is maybe because 
you know, because I think it's a good idea. And I know that, and this is from the research from Rosemary Basson, that once I start, maybe 15 or 20 minutes in, then I actually might start feeling horny because for a lot of us, particularly women and vulva owners, that horniness will not just drop out of the sky. We have to create it. It has to come from somewhere. There has to be some inspiration. And Basson's research teaches us that sometimes we have to start and then the desire or the horniness comes afterwards. I think this is also true across genders, but it does seem to be particularly prevalent uh, for women. And that that's okay. You know, that's a perfectly okay reason to trust that sometimes we have to move our body in the, in the direction of getting things going, trusting that the mind and the body are going to take a little bit of extra time to sync up. And again, we know this through studies from the dual control model and then moving more into the world of somatics, which has gained a lot of popularity in the last 10 years in the trauma world more than the sex world, but we can borrow some of the knowledge that has been emerging from the somatics world and place it. It fits perfectly, I think, into the sexuality world by understanding that when the nervous system, so when the mind and the body are in sync, when they're on board with each other, it's much easier for the body to relax and be able to have a good time, which is one of the conditions that we need to facilitate desire and then arousal. So part of this is understanding how desire might usually work for you, but it's also about understanding what is it that you want to get out of sex. And you can directly ask yourself, what is it that I want? What do I get out of sex? Why do I have sex? That might give you the answer, but you also have some useful exercises in your book where you ask people to think about what was a recent time you had sex that was really great and what was so great and fulfilling about it? What were you getting out of that situation? And so another way of approaching this question is to sort of analyze your own sexual experiences and the ones that really worked. And when you figure out, you know, what it is that made it so great, you might be able to take some principles from that and apply it to your sex life going forward so that you can have more experiences along those lines. But another way that you can also arrive at this question is to explore your sexual fantasies, which is another topic you discuss in your book. And it's something that's near and dear to me because I've studied them extensively. But one of the things you talk about is how if you really think deeply about your own fantasies, that can give you some level of self-understanding and help you figure out your core erotic themes. And I think this is such an important thing because when people think about fantasies, they have a tendency to just think about the specific sex act that is taking place. So maybe it's a threesome fantasy and you might be thinking, well, all I need to do is have a threesome and it's going to be great and fulfilling and arousing. And I often tell people to think about what is it that you really want to get out of that threesome experience? Is it that you just want to have three bodies there present and physically touching and interacting? Or is it that you want to be overwhelmingly desired by more than one other person and be the center of attention you know what is it psychologically emotionally that you might be getting out of that experience as well so can you tell us a little bit more about why you think understanding fantasies is so important and how people can sort of break them down into their key themes so i think the role of fantasies is helpful as a portal into how we want to feel more than what we want to do because I know, you know, from the work that I've done, again, like particularly with women, for example, one of the more common fantasies, and I'm not sure if this has been matched in your research, Justin, but 
it's very, very common, particularly for straight women, to have fantasies of being, you know, raped or overpowered as an erotic motivator. And then, you know, when they come to talk to me about it and they're like, but I don't want to do that in real life, so what's this about? Like I feel really weird and creeped out by this. And in these cases, it rarely, I think I've never had a client say, yes, I want it to happen. I did have one client who said that she wanted to have it happen in a consensual sort of pre-negotiated way, which is a separate thing. But for a lot of the others, it's more about, you know, what is it about the, the feeling in the fantasy, not the analysis afterwards, but in the fantasy, what is it that comes to life for you? And for a lot of them, it's not about, you know, the the real life story of how that would be if it were to really play out. For a lot of them, it is about experiencing what they would sort of describe as that, you know, lust and that power and that aggression and that sense of being completely overtaken and wanted in a way that at an erotic level, so this has not got anything to do with their education or their politics or their capacity to show up as feminists. It's got nothing to do with that stuff, but it's got to do with the emotional, almost profound sort of early stage psychological aspect of how our sexuality is a portal to us becoming friends with the parts of ourselves that we find hard to deal with. For a lot of us, sex is the place that unresolved emotions go to get processed. And so that's why we can end up having fantasies that we think, oh, my goodness, why why am I thinking about that? I would never do that in real life. I would never want for that to happen in real life. But when it's just me and my hand and my vibrator or whatever in the darkest moments of my, of my encounters, that's where my mind goes sometimes and then people feel terribly ashamed about it but it's not about the activities it's about what does it bring out in you what is it what's the the you know the wound i guess of for some people or what is the opportunity that's being created for you to come in touch with the feelings that your your you know your soul perhaps or you know the deeper parts of you are trying to communicate with you in that moment And that's why I think fantasy work is especially helpful. So one of the things I talk about in the book, which I borrowed heavily from Jack Marin, was this notion of the core erotic theme. And he talks about this, you know, idea that if we can sort of look at a series of fantasies and identify themes of maybe power or themes of surrender or themes of, you know, it might be a recurring symbol, a recurring fetish object. It might be that you want to have sex at certain times of the day or whatever it is that, you know, there are going to be all these little nuances, but you're not going to know those things necessarily straight out of the gate. You sometimes have to take the time to step back and actually look at them and then look for things that are the commonalities. So is it, you know, is it that you you like feeling overpowered? Is it that you like feeling powerful? Is it that you like being humiliated? Is it that you want to be taken care of? Is it that, you know, a lot of people have this fantasy of spontaneous sex. They, They just want it to happen, you know, effortlessly with no planning and it's just fabulous, again, straight out of the box. And it's a wonderful fantasy, but for the vast majority of people, it just doesn't happen that way. And then we can get disenchanted and disillusioned when we're with our partners because we think, well, why aren't we having spontaneous sex? Because in my mind it's amazing. But 
you know, when I try and do it with you, it doesn't work. So does that mean that we're not compatible? Or rather, there is something about the ease with which, you know, spontaneous sex can occur in a fantasy that allows you to be absolved of responsibility for 15 minutes at the end of your day or the start of your day or whatever it is. And what a wonderful balm, what a wonderful soothing place for your soul to land on an otherwise busy, hectic work schedule, you know. So this is where, you know, when we can identify through fantasies that, you know, I just I want to be taken on a journey. I want to be, you know, I, I want to feel like, you are leading this. And if we can say that to a partner in advance, like I know this about myself, I know that one of my, you know, greatest turn-ons is feeling like I'm being taken on a journey by you. Like I don't know what's going to happen and that I'm going to hand over my trust to you, I'm going to hand over my safety to you because I trust you and that you have permission to do, you know, all of these things, these are the kinds of things that help me feel really good. Please don't do these things. This is the sort of stuff that might get people excited again, especially if your sex life has gotten a little bit stale, starting to look at these sorts of things. On the other hand, it could be, you know, not necessarily something like that, but for somebody who is a bit more accustomed to always being in control, always being, you know, the leader, Maybe for them, part of the fantasy is about being vulnerable, being, you know, being seen in a light that perhaps nobody has ever seen them, revealing something about themselves that's incredibly private and tender that even their partner doesn't know about. For some people, that could be really erotic. For others, it could be a complete turn off. But only you know, as you're going through this process of asking yourself, well, why you know, why do I want to have sex? What do I want to feel? What kinds of things get me there in real life and in the privacy of my own mind? That you start putting together what I call your erotic template, that you start to understand your own machinations a little more. And going back to your question, you know, at the start of our discussion about why does generic sex advice not work? Because it, it can't go into these little nooks and crannies that profound self-inquiry can. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And you raised a lot of important points. And since you started by talking about forced sex fantasies, I actually did a whole podcast episode on that recently. And, you know, these fantasies are also sometimes called ravishment fantasies or consensual non-consent fantasies. And they have no bearing, no relation to sexual assault in the real world. For the most part, there are some people who are victims of sexual abuse who then fantasize about for sex. And, you know, that is something that arises for some people. But for the vast majority of people who have these fantasies, there's no connection there. And it is about these much deeper psychological needs that people have. And it's often about feeling sexually irresistible and being with a partner who has so much passion for you that they literally can't control themselves. And there can be something very empowering in that kind of scenario for these individuals. So 
I think in a lot of research on sexual fantasies, when you start really breaking down the fantasies, you see that it's about so much more than just a sex act. And that's why I think when it comes to sharing fantasies with a partner, that asking the question, how do you want to feel during sex can sometimes be an even more productive and useful discussion than what's your fantasy. Because I think when people say, what's your fantasy, and somebody just shares a fantasy that they have, that, you know, that can sort of create this script where you're supposed to go through these motions and, you know, do these specific sex acts. But if it's not getting at the actual feelings that you want to have during sex, then, you know, going down that path isn't necessarily going to be fulfilling. So that question, what do you want to feel during sex can be a really important one for partners to have. So I'm curious, since we're on the subject of fantasies, you know, so many people have difficulty talking about sharing their fantasies with a partner. So asking that question, how do you want to feel can be a helpful workaround for that. But do you have any other suggestions, you know, as a sex therapist for how do you get the conversation going with a partner about sexual fantasy or desire or what you want to get out of sex? Because sexual communication is just such a big problem area for so many people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, at the outset, I'm, I don't always recommend that people share fantasies. And the reason that I say that, that's not a blanket rule, it's a case by case situation. But in part, where I have seen it go horribly wrong, is when a partner shares a fantasy, and the other partner does not have the emotional dexterity to hold the story as simply a story. They start putting a spin on it and it's like, oh, well, if you're into that, then that means that you don't want me because I can't do, you know, X, Y, Z. And it it can just lead to a whole world of pain. So before we start sharing fantasies at that level, I think it's really important that we either having agreements in place up front, what are we going to do if we hear something we don't like? What are we going to do if we hear something that we think, oh, my goodness, I would never do that? Or is it perhaps better that we that we err away from the, you know, the fantasy question and instead put it onto, you know, how do you want to feel? And, you know, working through the book as you build your erotic template, there are lots of other parts to it. So something that I talk about is, you know, your erotic conditions and your erotic values. So these are things like, you know, I need I need to be in a bed, for example. I'm not going to be comfortable in the backseat of a car. I'm not going to be comfortable in the bathroom on an airplane. I'm not going to be comfortable on a bus, you know. And but for for somebody else, it might be I can only be comfortable in a public space. I don't I don't want to have sex in a bed. For me, it's boring, you know. And and that's okay. These sorts of you know so-called incompatibilities are going to come up. So we can sort of dig deeper into that and go, well, what is it about the bed that's so great for you? What is it about being on the roof of a double-decker bus that's so great for you? And these are the questions that are much more helpful rather than, you know, why don't you want to fuck me on a bus? Because that, that that's all automatically combative. But there's something about, you know, I enjoy... I enjoy that feeling of being a bit naughty. I feel, I enjoy that feeling of maybe getting caught. I enjoy the feeling of things being a bit edgy. Then it gives us leverage to be able to go, okay, well, let's find a compromise. What about up against the window of a hotel that has a nice bed, so I still get my bed, but, you know, we've got the window there as a, as a point of, of leverage. So 
being able to look at erotic conditions, I think, is a really handy thing. And then I talk about this other notion of erotic value, which are that the parts of our, again, our inner world that we determine are important and the degree to which they are important. So it might be things like, you know, it's important to me that you and I can have simultaneous orgasms. Like, you know, that that for me is a real sign that we are connected and, and things are okay. Now, if I haven't flagged that up front with my partner and there we are, you know, doing our stuff for months and months and perhaps years and years and we're, nobody's having these, you know, simultaneous orgasms and then I start becoming resentful because I've never said that that was what mattered to me. That has meant that, you know, all this time has passed where I have been playing out this story in my head, this script in my head of, you know, I'm going to be a good lover when we have simultaneous orgasms and for the last two years we haven't. So, therefore, you know, you're a bad lover or maybe I'm a bad lover, therefore we have to break up. And sometimes people will come to sex therapy and it will have got that bad before they come and then sometimes it's too late. You know, the infection has gotten so ingrained that sometimes you can't repair it at that point. And so that's why being able to look at our values and our conditions, as well as our fantasies, as well as, you know, what our relationship is like with pleasure, what motivates us to feel sexual, what our relationship is like with horniness. Do we feel okay when we're horny or does it make us feel a bit icky because we've had a very strong religious upbringing perhaps? All of these things are the kinds of things I encourage couples to talk about but it's not something that you talk about in like, all right, you've got 45 minutes, go. And then you just do it once and you never discuss it again. It doesn't work like that. It's more about creating permission within a relationship to start talking about these things and sharing knowledge with each other as if you were, you know, like an investigative journalist, not somebody who's sitting there going, well, I don't want the same thing as you, so therefore we're incompatible and therefore... We need to break up. So many people jump to these extraordinary conclusions. So understanding your own erotic template is really important, but it's just as important to understand your partner's erotic template and to not just assume that they have the same exact template as you or want the same things out of sex. I think so many people in relationships kind of get into that habit of mind reading and trying to, you know, figure out what their partner wants without actually asking them what they want. And so they project all of these assumptions. And the longer this goes on before people actually talk about it, the more likely it is that you're going to have conflicts and disagreements that arise. So it's important for us to have that self-understanding, but also to be curious about and willing to understand and ask questions about what it is that our partner wants as well, or partners, if you're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. So I think there are so many important things here in terms of just self-understanding that are important. But something else you talk about in your book is there are lots of other things that are important in the general way that we approach sex. And you have this whole chapter on sexual risk-taking that I think is really important. You know, as you mentioned, we often hear that risk-taking is bad because when you take a risk, there's a chance that someone might get hurt. But being willing to take risks to some degree, can actually be a good thing. So can you tell us a bit more about this idea and how being willing to step outside of your comfort zone a little bit, take a risk, can actually be beneficial for our sex lives? 
Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, when I was doing the research for that chapter, I, I just did not find much. And what I did find was more about just sort of, you know, it was a bit of a bit of a downer, really, just all these awful things, like what happens when people engage in reckless behaviour. And even that distinction for me was profound, that, that risk in a lot of the literature was categorised as reckless behaviour with no ethics and no social accountability. It was just, you know, this cavalier attitude. When I'm talking about erotic risk-taking, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking risks, measured risks, calculated risks, and there is a distinction, you know, and I don't go into this in the book, between what I call a playful risk and a dangerous risk. So a dangerous risk is something where you may irreversibly cause harm to yourself or your partner or, you know, the other people around. That's not what I'm advocating and I don't necessarily think that's a great thing. A playful risk is something where, you know, when you imagine yourself doing the thing, there's an element of, you know, your breath is stopped short, a spidge, but there's also a part of you, a physiological sense that moves towards the thing, like you kind of like, yeah. And there's there's just, you know, maybe the sides of your mouth curl up a little bit. It's a bit like, oh, okay, you know, I don't know. We're sort of on the edge of a thing. That is a way, I think, of being able to tell that there's something exciting in there for you. There's some sort of possibility that could come to life if you give yourself permission to do that. Again, you need to be considerate of your values, your conditions, your history, but also the fact that maybe you're venturing into new territory, something that you've never tried before. We give ourselves permission to try new things in other ways all the time. We will, you know, try new foods. We will, you know, go to countries and try to learn new languages and learn new instruments. And we think nothing of doing that. If anything, we're rewarded for such kind of risk-taking behaviour. But when it comes to sex, we tend to want to keep ourselves safe. We tend to want to sort of double down on security. And I think safety and security are important. I'm not saying that they're not important. But an erotic risk could be something quite mild. It could be something quite big. Again, it's up to you. Your interpretation of risk is perhaps going to be different to somebody else's interpretation. So for somebody, for example, who is accustomed to doing the penetrating during sex, whether it's with a penis or a hand or a toy or whatever, but they're always, you know, let's say they're always the top. For them, an erotic risk might be to allow themselves to be penetrated. That might be real edge play for somebody or to, you know, for somebody perhaps who struggles with erections, that their erections are unreliable, which is the majority of men. But for somebody for whom it happens often and it's become a source of shame, an erotic risk for them might be to be willing to allow themselves to be touched and held and caressed while they're soft rather than hard. That could be really edgy for somebody. So the risks are very subjective. It's very much based on your own experience of your body, your relationship to the erotic and where your edges. This is something that you would do gradually. I don't think you should just jump straight into, you know, high risk activities without having this conversation with yourself to start with and then having this conversation with your partner about what what feels good, what feels not so good. And again, coming back to, you know, well, what do you want to get out of it? 
What's the motivation of taking the risk? Do you want to feel excited? Do you want to feel a bit naughty? Do you want to feel just, I just want a bit of relief from the boredom? Whatever it is, is okay. But if we aren't able to name those things, if we struggle to be honest with ourselves at a minimum and then with our partners moving forward, it means that we're often stuck in this status quo place. And again, that's where people end up coming to sex therapy sometimes again too late that if we can catch these problems before they before they become traits let's say <laughs> we have a better chance of being able to to sort of pry open the doors a little bit and go all right well you know if we're in this stale old musty house let's open the windows and see if we can get some fresh air in here because i believe that all of us are capable of it provided we are willing to stretch ourselves in those directions and and really just be real with ourselves. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people, their approach to sex is that they want it to be perfect every time. And so part of that means that they want to know what to expect. And, you know, on the one hand, knowing what to expect when it comes to sex can lead to feelings of safety and comfort, and that can be a good thing. But at the same time, it can also lead sex to become too predictable and actually become boring. And that can sometimes precipitate a drop off in desire for one or more of the partners who are involved. So there's sort of this delicate balance between knowing what to expect when it comes to sex, but then also being willing to try new things. And I think with sexual novelty, anytime you try something new, whether it's a new sexual position or toy or other sex act or trying a new food, just trying anything new in life, there's inherent risk in that, in that you don't know if you're going to like the experience or not. Sometimes it'll be great. Sometimes the risk of trying something new will really pay off and you'll discover something new about yourself and have really intense pleasure. Other times you're like, nope, that's not for me never want to do it again so you kind of have to just be comfortable with some degree of discomfort and recognize that adding in some newness to sex can take sex to new heights but sometimes the risk won't always pay off and that's okay sex doesn't have to be perfect and mind-blowing every single time that you do it and the more expectation that you put on sex as you're approaching it, I think the harder it becomes to fulfill or live up to those expectations. So you kind of have to go in recognizing that you don't always know how it's going to go. Now, we're running short on time, Cindy, but I have one more question for you. So as we mentioned, the subtitle of your book is The Truth About Mismatched Libido and Rediscovering Desire. And we know that mismatched libido is one of the most common sexual difficulties that people report, one of the most common things that sends people to sex therapy. And it's one of those areas where we see a lot of generic sex advice, with perhaps the most common being to schedule sex. So for some people, you know, putting sex on the calendar maybe that'll work. But if the solution was that simple, this wouldn't be such a big and persistent problem for people. So I'm just curious, Cindy, do you have any advice for people who have these sexual desire discrepancies beyond just scheduling sex? You know, what is it that you want them to know when it comes to dealing with a mismatch and libido? Yeah. It's funny with the scheduled sex thing because I see my clients kind of roll their eyes when I talk about that and they're like, oh, I don't want to schedule sex. And I'm like, why? Tell me why you don't want to schedule sex. Oh, it's boring. <laughs> and I say to them, well, then don't schedule boring sex. Like, Come on, you've got a lot more leverage here, you know. <laughs> so I think this is the part of it is, you know, people are like, oh, it's boring. Well, 
make it less boring. You know, talk again, and this comes back to talking about, well, what would make it less boring? What is the fear of, of boring? Like, tell me about boring. What's so bad about it? It's predictable. It's, you know, you're just going to do the same thing of, you know, three minutes of this and two minutes of that and one minute of this. And, you know, and maybe you have an orgasm, but you're left like, oh, gosh, come on, get it over with. I'd rather just watch Netflix. Coming back to this notion of, if you don't want to schedule the sex or even if you do, that's not enough. There has to be an extra layer of enthusiasm with, with it, which is how do you want to feel historically what kinds of things have gotten you there? If you don't know, are you willing to try and discover what they are? If, you, if you've never sort of had a, an especially adventurous sex life, maybe your partner has, maybe your partner knows some stuff, maybe they are willing to suggest to you, all right, well, how about we try this and this? And you can talk about it in advance and set a few boundaries and a few parameters. But are you willing to, to take some erotic risks? Are you willing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone? So not in your harm zone, but just outside of your comfort zone. Are you are you really serious about changing the status quo of your relationship or is there some benefit that you get out of just complaining about it? These are the kinds of things that couples who are really serious about changing the erotic dynamic together have to consider and also to stop looking at the focus of it being just the lower desire partner as the person who's the problem and they're the one who has to change and, you know, you're broken and it's on you and I'm just going to, you know, sit here and wait for you to get your shit together. That doesn't work. It has to be a team effort. It has to be something like a project that you're working on together. And it's it's a little bit of a long game. So don't sort of, you know, ultimatums of if it's not fixed by September, then I'm out of here. I mean, so it might feel like that for you. And I hear that with folks, absolutely. But saying stuff like that tends to shut people down. And that's the last thing we want to do is shut anybody down. If anything, we want to open up curiosity. We want to open up communication. Maybe you want to open up your relationship. Maybe if things are that stale between the two of you, but you're otherwise feeling okay, maybe opening the relationship, bringing in a third person or having a partner on the side or whatever is a good option for you. It's not good for everybody, but for some people, it's a great option. Allow yourselves to be creative, allow yourselves to be imaginative, and most of all, allow yourselves to be honest with yourselves and then later on with each other because the answers you seek, you already have. They are inside you. I absolutely believe that you just have to be willing to let them out. I love all of that, and especially the part about stop scheduling boring sex. Schedule exciting sex. Put exciting sex on the calendar. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Cindy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your latest book? Absolutely. So my website is the home of all of my stuff, and that's my name, Cindy Darnell, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. You will see links there to the book, which you can buy in all the bookshops. Also, my social media handles are there. My online classes are there. And I also have a podcast called The Erotic Philosopher, which lives there too. And that's also where you can contact me to book 
appointments if you would like to work with me. I do work with clients across the world now with my global consulting practice. So I'm around. (laughs) Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.